companies everywhere are making ambitious commitments to reduce their carbon footprint. But for those that rely on cattle supply chains, those reductions will have to start with reducing emissions from the cattle themselves. They could put solar on as many of their factories as they wanted to. They could completely overhaul their entire vehicle fleet to be, you know, low emission vehicles. And still, if the cow is standing out there in the barn or in the pasture, burping her methane gas out, they were never, ever going to achieve their goal. A fascinating journey led Joan Salwin to launch Blue Ocean Barns. Their natural seaweed product can reduce enteric methane emissions in cattle by over 80%. We create a seaweed product that is a natural digestive aid that when fed to cows, uh, stops them from uh, burping those gassy burps that are harmful to the atmosphere. This is a critical piece toward what Joan and many others believe is possible, carbon neutral dairy. Oh, I'm a believer in carbon neutral dairy, absolutely. Joan Salwin of Blue Ocean Barns joins me to talk seaweed production and its incredible impact on cattle methane emissions on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Hello, Ag Nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to sit down with the founders, farmers, innovators, and investors, the people shaping the future of the ag industry. I'm really, really excited to share this week's episode with you. There really is just so much here to unpack. Uh, you just heard at the top about the incredible methane emissions that this product is capable of producing for dairy cows and really any room in it. But what you probably don't know yet is that there's this incredible entrepreneurial journey that Joan went through to resurrect old research in this area, support new research, and continue to validate these findings, then commercialize the venture, then go figure out how to grow, process, and distribute a seaweed product at scale that could be meaningful for the future of agriculture. Super cool stuff. I can't wait to share it with you. But before we dive into all of that, I want to begin today's episode by thanking our sponsor for this quarter, which is Merck Animal Health Ventures. Merck Animal Health Ventures is a premier investor in animal ag tech. They invest in companies creating the next generation of animal identification and monitoring technology to advance animal health, as well as new business models to create value from animal data. Merck Animal Health Ventures partners with early stage technology companies to successfully scale solutions for their customers which include livestock producers, veterinarians, and pet owners. For more information, check out the Merck Animal Health Ventures website. And if you're an entrepreneur in an animal health-related industry, make sure you get in touch with them. Thanks so much to Merck Animal Health Ventures for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Okay, now back to today's episode with Joan Salwin, co-founder and CEO of Blue Ocean Barns. Joan, as you're about to hear, comes from a long line of farmers. Um, She grew up in Iowa, where she harvested cherries and cared for sheep. And during her 20 years as a managing director at Accenture, Joan managed over $50 million of client relationships and led the firm's Atlanta practice for organization and change strategy. In 2015, Joan transitioned to Stanford, where she built a team that energized university market and government interest in seaweed as a solution to climate change. She founded Elm Innovations, a nonprofit platform for exploring the potential of the seaweed livestock connection, and ultimately co-founded the commercial engine for it, Blue Ocean Barns, in 2019. 
Before we dive in here, just one thing to note uh, is that the species of seaweed they produce is called Asparagopsis, but their proprietary variation is called Brominata. So you're going to hear us use both of those terms, and that's why. But I'll drop you into the conversation here where Joan is talking about her background and what led her to become so fixated on this problem of enteric methane emissions in ruminants. My father, my grandfather, and all of their fathers, back actually, Tim, to the Revolutionary War, have raised livestock in North America. And uh, as a child, we actually moved into town. My dad, you know, threw in the towel on the farm stuff and became a high school gym teacher. But every Saturday and Sunday, we were in the shadow of that farm and helping with, uh, you know, everything from taking care of the livestock to canning cherries and all that kind of thing. So I really gained a huge respect for rural life and the ingenuity of farmers. My grandfather, Mo King, is clearly one of my uh, lifetime heroes. And he was just an amazing steward of his animals, the land, the creek that ran through our farm, all those kinds of things. And um, he was a, a real lover of sheep, I must say. But at any rate, when I left the farm, went to Northwestern University and started my own career, at some point I learned that there was this theory later you know, proved that livestock were emitting as part of their natural digestive process, a pretty potent greenhouse gas. And I was like, no, that's not even true. That can't be true. And I think back to what my grandfather might have wanted to talk about as it relates to that byproduct of his livelihood and the, the legacy that he created for our family. So after a career with Accenture and as the founder and headmaster of a girls' school that was focused on STEM careers and really did focus on the climate a great deal, I decided to go to Stanford to pursue this question much greater, like, what's the state of play with enteric methane? You know, what's been tried, what has failed, and uh, you know, what can I do to continue my grandfather's uh, work and legacy and to create a world in which farmers truly are stewards of the planet in every way, providing nutritious food as well as taking care of the land and the atmosphere that we all depend on. And when you pursued that opportunity at Stanford, did you already know it was going to end up being a, a startup company on the other end? Oh, completely not. No, I really didn't know where it was going to take me. I felt lucky to be at a point in my life and career where if that did happen, that'd be a path I could pursue. But no, I really went to you know maybe find a, a thing that was already in play and needed some policy support or some, you know, I don't know what, but um, I kept my mind open and was just really curious about what was out there and could it make a difference? All right, great. Well then, so you get to Stanford, you're looking for, you know, who's actually, and that's similar to what I'm doing on this podcast, right? Who's actually doing something that I can get behind, that I can help support, that I can get out there. And, uh, you know, what happened? Yeah, well, I just totally made a nuisance of myself with all of the professors in climate science and climate policy, you know, climate economics, et cetera, in the School of Earth, primarily David Lobel and Roz Naylor and Rob Jackson, people who really are trying to understand the impact of agriculture on the planet. And they directed me to places where I could homeschool like a boss. And so I did. I just read and read and read scientific journals and ag journals to learn, you know, kind of where we were. And, you know, one night, I want to say like after 11 o'clock p.m. for sure, I stumbled upon this seaweed, you know, work that had been done in Australia. And it was already a couple of years old. And I thought, you know, maybe this is already out. There. Maybe this is a thing. Perhaps this is a thing. 
So I went back to my mentors at Stanford um, that I was working with as a visiting scholar, and they told me I needed to get my buns over to University of California at Davis, that that team would be the right folks to really know whether this had ever been published in a major journal, has it ever been presented on a you know, global conference, whatever, you know, what is this thing? So I headed on over there and learned that there was some familiarity with it. But basically, Tim, this, this research group had disbanded and moved on to biochar and a bunch of other things. The funding had changed, you know, funding sources had changed. And so this particular technology had never been subjected to a proof of concept. Uh, it had never been replicated in another institution. So that's what we got on right away was raising foundation funds and you know open source research funding to give this a ride to see whether with the kind of feedstock that we use in the United States, the kind of breeds of cattle we raise in the United States, could this be matched in a United States institution? So I stapled myself to Ermias Cabreab for four years, now five, and uh, we started a research agenda that was really far-reaching and at a pace he's never seen before. <laughs> Well, what what a fantastic person to be stapled to. I mean, extremely well-respected and genuinely curious guy. Truly, really a, a stand-up guy. And one of the first things he said to me was, you need to raise some research dollars for this. Let me tell you, do not tell anybody that you are thinking that there's a possibility that there's a seaweed out there that could reduce methane gas by 90%. Because, Joan, that's not going to happen, actually. Like 20% is just a killer reduction in methane gas. So don't overpromise because there have been a lot of things that have come and gone, you know, oregano or, you know, oils, lipids, whatever, and nobody gets 80%. So let's just keep it between us as you raise the money and we'll just see how it goes. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny antidote, but there's there's a really, really deep truth in there too, which is this whole story has a bit of a fairy dust, you know, perception to it, right? Like really, you're just going to add a little bit of seaweed and it's all going to go away, right? Exactly, exactly. And so we, we didn't want to overpromise. And the mode of action for asparagopsis is, is fairly straightforward. We scientists have known for a long time that there's you know, a whole suite of low molecular weight compounds that if they are put into a, an anaerobic environment like the rumen, that it will interrupt the process of methane gas production. But some of those halogenated compounds had been fed to cattle you know, a decade ago, and they either didn't have a lasting effect. You know, for example, the rumen adapted to that after, you know, about 28 days, or it actually made the cow a bit sick. It raised the hydrogen pressure within the rumen and the cow became full and chose not to eat any further. So there were problems with this bioactive ingredient. And so there were reasons to be skeptical. What we learned feeding it first, you know, to flasks and beakers and then to an artificial rumen and then to live dairy and beef cattle is that the natural envelope of the seaweed and the matrix of compounds that are held within the cells of that seaweed are part of that fairy dust you're talking about. Nobody can describe how Mother Nature engineered the seaweed to be so much more effective than the compounds alone. But just like cows like <laughs> photosynthesizing organisms all the way around. They love, you know, clover and oats and hay and whatever. And this is just another one of those. It's essentially a dried grass out of a marine environment. And in that form, it's highly digestible and usable by the cow. And, you know, I guess I just want to say, I think we're lucky 
that that's the way she engineered the cow. So it's working out. Right. And, and could you give us maybe the science 101 of where does the methane go? So right now we know it's from the grass being fermented in the rumen and then it's burped back out. Where does it go when you add seaweed? Great question. So the methane is never formed. It's never created when in the presence of the seaweed. The hydrogen and carbon molecules that normally come together when you're fermenting grass never come together. And the reason they don't is that this you know, bioactive ingredient kind of hides a coenzyme from the methanogenesis equation. And so the chemical reaction never finishes, which leaves the carbon and the hydrogen kind of orphaned, if you will. Cows who eat the seaweed do burp more hydrogen. No one cares about that. It's not a greenhouse gas. It turns to dew. There's no problem with that. But some of the hydrogen, very importantly, creates a little bit of hydrogen pressure, which redirects the carbon and many other nutrients in the rumen to the creation of volatile fatty acids, which are the building blocks of sugar and energy for the cow. So the cow actually has a positive nutritional benefit. She's able to actually use more of the grass than she was earlier for her own sustenance because she's not losing hydrogen and carbon out her mouth that becomes just nutritional waste. Well, that's fantastic. Um, so is there a noticeable efficiency improvement as well in the studies, or is that not what you've been, I mean, obviously you've been focused on the emissions aspect, but is there also an efficiency gain? You know, that's a bit where we are right now. Our first order of business was to make sure that it was safe for the cows. The second order of business was to make sure that it was efficacious against gas with all sorts of different diets, that it really did drive down methane gas no matter what. And now the third is to really sharpen our lens on the productivity. There have been seven or eight live animal trials so far, and some of them haven't even measured the efficiency. But those who have, there have been two studies that have seen measurable, even double-digit gains in feed conversion efficiency. One other study, Tim, showed nothing. So we've got a little noise in our data right there, but we are you know, feeding it to more and more cows uh, throughout 2022. And you can be sure that's now something that we're measuring very closely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and one more question on sort of like the how it works part. You mentioned that similar products have been fed to cows in the past. And one possible outcome is that the cow's, I guess, microbiome is how I understood it, maybe adapted to it, and then it stopped working so well. Is there any concern of that here? Well, there certainly was a concern, and that was one of the you know, 20 or so items we needed to knock off our research agenda. Hermias early on had a hypothesis that the rumen would not adapt, and that's because of the mode of action. You know, we're not really changing any archaea, we're not, you know, killing any bacteria, we're not, we're not actually, you know, like waking the rumen up to say, ha ha, something new is happening, and you need to fix that. It's when this uh, bioactive ingredient sequesters the nickel cofactor, the rumen doesn't really feel like anything's going on. You know what I mean? It feels like, you know, nothing is truly, truly disrupted. And so the cow just keeps eating her grass and fermenting it without the creation of methane gas, without really knowing that there's a new situation that requires some, you know, rumen microbiome action. So that was our hypothesis. So one of the studies that we did was 147 days. You know, Hermes and other scientists say that after 28 days, maybe 35, 40 days, if there's going to be rumen adaptation, we're going to see it. In 147 days, there was no rumen adaptation. And if anything, Tim, the methane reductions became a little bit stronger. It's incredible. At what point then did you decide, okay, 
rather than just supporting this research, I actually need to be a part of the commercialization of this product and, and decide that Blue Ocean Barns needed to exist. Yeah. It wasn't so much that I felt that I needed to be a part of this. I recognized that philanthropic dollars and federal grant dollars were only going to go so far and that the private sector was going to have the means to drive adoption of this product. So it became clear that a commercial engine was needed. So we created Blue Ocean Barns in 2019. And that was really after the safety and the efficacy work was really pretty much in the bag. And where the biggest challenge became how to cultivate the seaweed at scale. And, you know, that's that's really where Blue Ocean Barns came in, where we, you know, allied ourselves with the top marine scientists in the world, the single woman, Jen Smith, who knows more about asparagopsis than anybody who's at UC San Diego, and really figured out as quickly as possible, you know, how does this little oddity become a crop? How do we make that happen? So that has been the work of Blue Ocean Barns since 2019. Interesting. And did you have a commercialized model you could follow for, you know, seaweed production at scale? Yes and no. This particular seaweed had never been domesticated. It had never been grown in captivity. And so, you know, there were a lot of really fundamental questions. How does this thing produce seeds? You know, how do we make that happen in captivity, et cetera? I mean, I really feel like we're a bunch of corn farmers, you know, in indigenous communities in Mexico 2000 years ago. Oh, corn, like, wow, I wonder, like, how deep do we need to plant it? How, how often, what season should we plant it in? How, how far away should the rose be? That's the fundamental level of questions that we were having to ask in the marine context for our asparagopsis. So I just want to assure you, we have killed more asparagopsis than you can imagine. You know, we could have fed thousands of cows with the asparagopsis that we have murdered in the cause of science, learning how to cultivate. So we had just iterated and iterated and iterated on light conditions, pH conditions, salinity, you know, number of hours of light, what color of light you can imagine. So, you know, we had a lot to learn and we continue to learn, but we have developed as a result, a lot of intellectual property and, you know, insights where we only have to learn this once. And now we can move on quickly to the next level of scaling up. And, and is that why you're in Hawaii is because that's the place to grow this type of seaweed? Yes, absolutely. Hawaii is not the only place to grow by any means. You know, there are lots of oceans in which this grows and could be cultivated where the conditions, the seawater is friendly to it. First of all, I should say we are growing on land in tanks, which is an important part of our ability to reach scale at an economical price. But Hawaii has a really interesting asset for us. And that is that the state about 20 years ago invested 60 or $80 million in infrastructure that pumps nutrient-rich deep seawater that is crystal clean. I mean, you know, there are no microplastics in here. There's no anything in here. It's just at the bottom of the ocean, full of nutrients and really crystal clean. They have installed pumps that can be shared by dozens and dozens and dozens of aquaculture uses. So we've got in our office park where we work, there are academics, there are people growing fin fish, uh, shellfish, microalgae, macroalgae, all sorts of things. And everybody has the power, Tim, to turn on a spigot and have this perfectly wonderful seawater just come right into our, our shop. In addition, there is a surface seawater spigot that we can turn that, that has warm water and it has you know all the qualities of water in which most marine species grow. So no other state 
in the United States has it. I dare say I don't think there's anywhere in the world that has it. You know, we were located in California and to get a permit to pump ocean water off the coast of California would have taken us at least nine years. There are just so many organizations that can veto the use of shoreline and water and all that kind of thing. And Hawaii says, welcome, come on over. We've got your water, use it. So it's absolutely essential that we start here. And from here, we can then uh, create a replicable model that we can take to a lot of different grow locations. And I understand, I mean, you all have have already you know, achieved pretty incredible efficiencies. Uh, walk us through like what it would take to produce enough of this, you know, to actually make an impact on the U.S. cattle population. Yeah. So achieving high density and frequent harvests is absolutely critical to feeding 100 million cattle in the United States. So our R&D agenda has largely been around how do we grow more and more of it with a greater percentage of the bioactive ingredients in the smallest soil footprint as possible. And so currently we are producing enough per acre to feed upwards of 7,000 cows. We need to get to 10,000 to really hit a price point. And when I say 10,000 cows, I mean continuously forever, not just for this season and then we have to do it again next season. It's continuously forever. And so in order to, to supply 100 million cows in the United States, we'd need about 4,000, 4,500 acres, which is in the grand scheme of agricultural production, just an incredibly small amount. Like there are lots and lots of Colorado corn farms that are larger than that single plot. So, you know, imagine it's half the size of O'Hare Airport or a fifth of the size of Walt Disney World. You know, it's just not what we had originally feared, which was that we were going to have to take over the entire ocean and the entire Western United States to be able to produce enough for the cows. But it's not its not the case. And that's thanks to a lot of cultivation innovation that we've applied to the growth of the plant. And to reiterate the point here, that would mean reducing the methane emissions of 100 million cattle by 80 plus percent. Is that right? That is correct. Wow. That's astounding. And so what goes into the process of, of growing is it asparagopsis? Am I saying that right? Asparagopsis? You are. And we have actually invented our own variety of asparagopsis called brominata. So I like to talk about brominata. It is uh, better by a mile than what nature can produce. And I'm so sorry, because I have so much respect for Mother Nature. Well, I don't think she's optimizing just for asparagopsis. So she's got other things on her mind. <laughs> Excellent. She's very, very busy. So brominata is a kind of asparagopsis that has you know, pound for pound, more of the bioactive ingredient than is found in the wild or can be created in the wild. Interesting. Well, um, I assume there are. Are there inputs that go into commercially producing seaweed as far as, you know, fertilizer, et cetera? I know you're producing your proprietary genetics, but anything in the growing process? Uh, I'm just curious how, how you evaluate your own footprint so that we're not just shifting a footprint from cattle to something else. Yeah. So in the case of asparagopsis, we have two different production systems. We have an organic production system that is already been certified by Oregon Tilth. It's USDA certified organic. And in that system, we do not use any inputs at all. We are using continuously flowing seawater so that there's a continuous reintroduction of whatever natural uh, nitrates and phosphates are in the ocean. 
and any other micronutrient. We are finding that the growth rates and biosynthesis rates of the compounds is slower in those systems. You know, so in a separate system, we're optimizing for both of those measures, biosynthesis rates and growth rates. And we are finding that there are certain fertilizers, certain uh, gases that can be introduced into the water, you know, slight differences in the pH that are made by an input, you know, that today may or may not be allowed in an organic system. Right now, our goal is to produce the organic product as it is while we are optimizing our non-certified organic product. And sometime this fall, Tim, we'll be looking at our total list of inputs in our kind of optimized, wonderful version one of our product to see which of those can already be introduced into our organic system. They're already on the National Organic Program list. We're ready to go. Which ones of them might we want to petition the National Organic List to include, et cetera? So we're finding that the plant does fine with no inputs, but to get to a price point where it can be affordable and you know widely distributed and adopted, we are going to want to introduce inputs that we know help us reach the economies we need. Yeah. Well, and, and that kind of brings us to our next big challenge. And obviously, you you do not shy away from challenges, right? I mean, here you you go to Stanford just wondering, like, what's out there? Wide open, not knowing. So you start from scratch. You find this research and you kind of do everything you need to do to resurrect the research. Then you go figure out a way to commercially produce, you know, the seaweed. And now you've got to figure out a business model that sustains, you know, the production of the seaweed. So maybe talk about the business model a little bit. That's sort of the... I don't know if the challenges happen sequentially like that, but to me, in my mind, that's where I see like the next thing where you've got to go figure it out. Super good point. And I will say the challenges just keep coming. I mean, I don't know if they're in order or if they're, you know, an onslaught, but they do keep coming. So when I first founded this company with my co-founder, Matt Roth, I think that for a moment we envisioned ourselves, you know, walking down a dusty rural road with a huge satchel of samples and knocking on barn doors one by one, you know, and saying, this stuff is really great, Mr. or Miss Farmer, you got to use this stuff. And, you know, it didn't take very long uh, for both of us, because we're both farm kids to realize being a farm input is not actually going to be a winning strategy. Selling this directly to farms is not going to be a winning strategy, both for the speed of adoption that we as a planet need. And secondly, for the, the realities of farming and the you know, the risks that farmers have to take on dealing with weather and pests and drought and all this other kind of thing, you know, to have them just decide that they will pay and adopt this climate saving ingredient was really not a way to go. At the same time, we did realize that up the supply chain, there were potential buyers who had a lot more power over pricing, over branding over storytelling about their products than a farmer ever will. And those people also were getting a lot of pressure from their stakeholders, from their activist board members, from, uh, in some cases, especially in Europe, their federal governments, to really take seriously the climate impact of their manufacturing processes. Many of them made impossible, I tell you, impossible goals for greenhouse gas reductions in their supply chains by 2025 or 2030 without realizing that they could put solar on as many of their factories as they wanted to. They could 
completely overhaul their entire vehicle fleet to be, you know, low emission vehicles. And still, if the cow is standing out there in the barn or in the pasture, burping her methane gas out, they were never, ever going to achieve their goals. We identified very carefully and very strategically those corporations that not only had made these bold goals, Tim, but were evidencing a willingness to invest in meeting those goals. So these are the companies who have tried to plant trees on the farms that they own or on the properties they own to sequester carbon and soil. You know, it encouraged their farmers to use cover crops and all these kinds of things. They were, you know, leaders in trying to get to the end. And of course, it cost them money to do all those programs. And so we basically said, what does it cost you to do that on a ton of carbon basis? What does it cost you to do that? Can we work to match that? And that is what we have done. And so, of course, these corporations, honestly, of course, they are willing to pay because they need to make their goals. They're doing other investments to meet their goals. So this is just one more lever they can pull to meet the objectives that they want to meet. And so the farmers in their supply chains receive Romanada for free. I've worked with enough farmers to know it's not always quite that simple because if I get a call from the person that I'm selling to and they say, hey, you're going to start using this, but don't worry, it's free. I'm going to say, well, hold on. You know, what is it? My nutritionist has never heard of it. What's going to happen to my cows? That's who I care about first and foremost. What's it going to take for my employees to do this and to do it right? How do those conversations go? They're a lot of fun because both Matt and I love farmers. So we have told our our customers to shut up. Do not say we're here from corporate office and we're here to help. Introduce us to a co-packer or a co-op or a milk processor in your chain. We'll go talk to them and we will identify Mr. Pioneer or Miss Pioneer. This is the farmer in the milk shed or in the supply shed who is always trying things. And everyone in town at the coffee shop is talking about like, what's Ernie doing now? He's got a digester. What is that? Let's go see. So we find the pioneers in their supply chains and they've been reading about us for years. And they, you know, when we call up, they're like, oh man, I wondered when you were going to show up. So we do this the way everything is done in farm adoption by farmers talking to farmers. And, you know, you know, what we require when we do a pilot with a farmer is that she or he decides that they will do this kind of 90 day use of our product where we install the actual the methane measurement machines so that they can see with their own eyes how much reductions they're getting. You know, they're doing a bunch of stuff with uh, body composition so we can see, you know, how does this affect health? The, the nutritionist is involved. The vet is involved. We do this kind of thing. And then at the end of it, they have an open house. And, you know, friends from within the county, the next county, people who have contacted us from, you know, elsewhere in whatever state have said, when you do this, I want to know more about it. And that farmer is, it becomes a storyteller and an evangelist on, on her own or on his own. We know that it has to go that way. It can't be, this is a new spec for your milk. Um, in addition to having this much protein and fat in your milk, you also have to make sure that it is, you know, this much decarbonized or whatever, that's not going to work. So, however, we know that the speed of adoption, once a farmer has adopted it and is liking it, and it is supported by the buyer of the milk or beef from that, you know, that area, 
that we will be having rapid adoption. Okay. Well, obviously, we know your focus is on these methane emissions, but I know you've also just done a lot of research into this topic in general. Do you foresee a future with between your product and maybe these uh, manure digesters that we could have carbon neutral dairy? Oh, I'm a believer in carbon neutral dairy. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as as you may have read, one of our early adopters and early evangelists, Albert Strauss at Strauss Family Creamery in Northern California, he is committed to having his single farm be carbon neutral by the end of 2023. And this is a and this is an essential uh, lever in that, but he's also already done the digester work. He has done the the vehicle work that he needs to do. He's done composting, carbon farming, cover crops. You know, he's done everything. You know, he's that Ernie I was talking about, the guy who's always finding new ways to get stuff done. But um I believe he will be totally carbon neutral by the end of 23 and wants to use himself as a challenge to the industry. Yeah, we can do this. You know, we can do this. That's incredible. Well, there's a lot of cows that aren't dairy cows out there. Are, are you doing any work in the beef industry? We are. I will say that in our early years, we're, we're just going to market here in 2022. So it's easiest for us to learn about our product and to learn, you know, what we need to do to, to, um, to improve it with animals who are fed in a contained or semi-contained environment. So we're starting there. So we are doing some feedlot work as well as our dairy work. The holy grail, of course, is getting this out on rangeland and pasture land. And my view on that is that it's not going to be rocket science. Compared to some of the things we've already solved, I don't think that will be the one that knocks us off. But because you know minerals are delivered out to pasture and water is delivered out there, we'll figure out a way to deliver this. But, but for the time being, we're, we're mostly working with dairy in part because the dairy companies have been more ambitious in stating their greenhouse gas reduction goals. So that's given us a very ripe market and a lot of people who, you know, a lot of demand that we need to fulfill. Uh, but we're working, as I mentioned, with one consortium, actually, of dairy producers that include the feedlot operator, the co-packer, and several other stakeholders in that ecosystem. Okay. Yeah. Well, this has really been fantastic. I'm looking over my notes here to see what, what I haven't asked about, but I, I think, you know, a, a couple of questions for you, and, and this is maybe zooming out a little bit. A, a lot of people in your same shoes, when you, you know, took that, that challenge to go to Stanford and really dive into this topic would have arrived at the conclusion that, yep, cows are the problem and we just need less cows. You know, what, what kept you from going that route of saying like, no, we have all these cows and we just, we could find a way to improve the way the industry does things rather than create this alternative industry instead? Yeah. Well, so I'll start by saying, you know, I'm a believer in choice. And so I know there will be consumers who really feel that their highest and best contribution is to stop eating meat and to stop drinking milk and to use plant-based substitutes and and be part of the plant-based movement. And I think that's, I, I love that they have that choice and that there are increasing products that allow them to make that choice. I think that the number of folks who willingly, you know, go that route is probably niche, you know, it's a small percentage. And so while that feels ideal to some people's minds, the reality is, especially as the third world becomes uh, more wealthy and wants more choice, they also want to have the choices that, that we have always had to consume products that seem delicious and wonderful, and by the way, are. So I think that the problem, if there is one, 
of having cows on the planet is not going to go away soon. So while we, you know, have a number of folks who are focused and moving certain populations of, of consumers into plant-based alternatives, the cows are going to be on the planet. As long as cows are on the planet, there's no reason why we shouldn't aggressively improve, you know, their digestion so that rather than burping out carbon and hydrogen in the form of CH4, it stays in their digestive system and helps them produce better outcomes from their feed. I also know cows are, in addition to being, you know, the problem, they're also, as you well know, a solution to, you know, biodiversity on rangeland, you know, to, you know, using worthless grasses that are, to any other organism are unusable, but cows are just incredibly wonderful that they can eat pretty much worthless forage and turn it into delicious proteins in the form of milk and meat. And we need cows to do those ecosystem services for us. So we're not, you know, rabidly pro-cow by any means, but we are absolutely committed to livestock producers and their families and their communities, which are, you know, really fundamental to the United States landscape and the world. Most poor people in the world are subsistence farmers that raise livestock. We need to move to a world in which they can raise that livestock in a sustainable way. And I know our product is one part of that solution. Well, thank you so very much to Joan Salwin of Blue Ocean Barns for being on the show. Man, I sure enjoyed that one. I hope you listening did as well. Oh, and they have something that you almost never see in the ag tech world, an informative website. You can check that out over at blueoceanbarns.com. Thank you once again to Joan. And thanks to those of you who continue to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We had a really helpful one recently that I thought I'd give a read to, and this is coming from Kelsey M. Leslie. The title is Episode 311, which is the episode about earthworms. It says, really enjoying this podcast while I'm out monitoring pests and diseases in grapes. Very cool, Kelsey. I wanted to share in response to Episode 311 that there are commercial vermicompost facilities in Northern California. Check out Terravesco based in Sonoma. Our local growers love it. Awesome. I love the review, first of all. And second of all, I love that it's actually contributing to the show. So I will check out Terravesco. So stand by for that perhaps in the future. Uh, Well, thanks all of you who take the time, like Kelsey did, to rate and review this podcast. Again, you can do so on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your feedback really does help to keep me motivated to continue to make this show as good as it possibly can be. Uh, Thanks so much for your time and your attention. I never take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation.